In this lecture, I'm going to take you through the process of judicial policymaking, and I've got the notes up here on the board already, so you can take a look at them. Uh, I'm going to elaborate on all of these points as I move through my lecture. One thing I do want to note at the beginning here is that not everything the judicial branch does counts as policymaking. Um, building on what I said in the last lecture, what happens at the bottom level of the uh, hierarchy of judicial decision making, the trial or the hearing, the factual determination of guilt or innocence or responsibility or non-responsibility, that doesn't really have policy implications. It, it has implications for the life and activities of a particular individual or a group that's party to that dispute, um, but it doesn't necessarily have policy implications. Many appeals also don't have policy implications because the appeal is mostly just about whether or not the thing that happened at the trial level was done correctly. Um, but an awful lot of what the judicial branch does has policy implications. And the reason why that's the case is because of a really important uh, concept in our system of jurisprudence, and that is judicial review. Judicial review is the right of courts to void an act of government based on an interpretation of the law or constitution. One of the interesting things about judicial review is that it is not mentioned in the U.S. Constitution. And in fact, it was, it was the subject of an early battle among the first generation of American politicians, many of whom had actually written that constitution, whether or not the uh, power of judicial review is actually implied by or not implied by the U.S. Constitution. That question has been settled, uh, and even the originalists on the Supreme Court who believe that the original intention of the founders should be followed, and many of those founders argued that judicial review didn't exist, those justices believe that uh, the court system, the judicial branch, has the right to do this. If it weren't for the power of judicial review, there would be no judicial policymaking. Um, the reason why some of the original opponents of judicial review, which included uh, Thomas Jefferson when he was president, um, the, for not including this is that they didn't want the judicial branch to be a policy-making branch. They wanted the judicial branch to essentially handle cases, to decide winners and losers uh, on a case-by-case -case basis. And so, of course, the court system would be important. It would be a place where the law was applied, but it would not be a place where the law was evaluated. Um, the idea being that unelected judges have no political responsibility to the people, and so they shouldn't be applying, uh, or excuse me, evaluating the law, they should be just applying it. And the reason why they're unelected is so that they can be fair and impartial, but because they're unelected, it means they actually don't connect to the will of the people. Uh, the proponents of judicial review won that battle, and so we get judges and justices playing an extremely important role in what's now, instead of a two-step policy-making process, which is what we would have without judicial review, legislative acts, executive uh, uh, implementation and interpretation of that, we have a three-step process, which then allows the judicial branch to weigh in, in a sort of limited way. One of the things about judicial policy-making is that, unlike legislative policy-making, which is very broad field, uh, except for the restrictions against it, um, the legislatures, the Congress and the state legislatures have a pretty free hand in making policy. Um, the executive branch has a more narrow realm of policy making because executive branch, the executive branch can only make policy within the boundaries set by legislative acts and only with the resources, financial particularly resources, that the legislature gives to it in the budget. The judicial branch has a, also a more narrowed uh, um, uh, set of policymaking. It's a policymaking arena that is smaller. Um, 
and uh, I will talk about how uh, this policymaking power uh, and the way that people who are trying to lobby in the judicial branch uh, differs from the legislative and the executive in the next lecture, but I'll just note that there is a diminished domain of decision-making. But within the domain that's opened up by judicial review, uh, courts, appellate courts, but of course the, mostly we're talking here about the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court can make important policy. And it's important policy because if it voids an act of the government, if it says, no, you can't do this, this law is unconstitutional, this executive order is unconstitutional, this determination of this executive uh, uh, agency uh, violates the Constitution or it, it misinterprets the statute as it was originally uh, written by Congress, that has important policymaking implications because it changes the way the law is applied in the world, either by getting rid of the law or by uh, making uh, there have to be a particular interpretation of that law that is now set in the Supreme Court ruling. So there are important policymaking implications. Um, the way that this policy is made is through a court ruling. What happens with a Supreme Court case is that the Supreme Court it, uh, accepts the appeal with at least four justices saying, yes, we want to hear this case. Then they hold a hearing where the, argue, the lawyers from both sides argue in a very familiar adversarial setting. The judges, themse the justices themselves listen, they ask questions, uh, and then later, after the hearing, usually months later, typically it's in uh, June, the court will issue its ruling. Now, <clears throat> where does the ruling come from? The ruling comes from and announces, as part one, the outcome of the winner, right? Basically what happens is the Supreme Court votes. They go into their, uh, their conference room and they, I don't know if they actually physically raise their hand or not, but they do the equivalent of raising their hand and it takes five votes to win. So if there are two plaintiffs in the case, right? If like, if I was, if I was arrested under a law that I then challenged that law as a violation of the Fourth Amendment, uh, and I was convicted, found guilty, that's the factual question that the jury decided at the, uh, at the trial level, and then I went to an appeal, and the appellate court says, no, 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 that law is constitutional based on these precedents, and I appeal to the Supreme Court uh, and say, no, no, I think the appellate court got it wrong, or I want you, the Supreme Court, to rethink precedent and to interpret the Constitution uh, in a way that would, that would say that the law that was used to prosecute me is uh, uh, unconstitutional. So we have, let's just call it United States versus Miller. Um, the, uh, if, if I get five votes, then I'm the winner. Miller's the winner. If the United States gets five votes, the United States is the winner. Uh, now, if it weren't for judicial review, then th that would be it. And basically, there might be an argument, there might be reasoning. The court might say, well, here's why we gave the win to Miller or we gave the, the win to the U.S. government. But uh, that, would, that would leave out the important policy part, right? But uh, the, the policymaking process starts with a winner, right? And the winner is the winner because at least five of the justices on the Supreme Court side with that particular winner. Now, in the next lecture, I'm going to talk about what it is that the makeup of the court affects the arguments that my lawyers would make and the outcome. Uh, so I'll leave all that kind of discussion of why it is that I might have won or the U.S. government might have won uh, at this particular moment for the next lecture. The winner is, of course, it's important to me, and it's, it, it, has, it brings with it the, the beginning of the policy implications, but it's not the most important part. The argument is important because this is where the court, and what happens is the winning side, let's say there's five justices on the winning side, 
the winning side will assign one of the justices in the majority to write the court opinion, to write the ruling. And this is what the Supreme Court will publish. Um, now, the way the Supreme Court uh, has organized itself, and this is an internal rule, is that if the Chief Justice is on the winning side, the Chief Justice assigns the justice to write the court ruling. Often, if it's a really important case, assigning it to himself, um, but sometimes assigning it to another justice who either has expertise in that area or who was a crucial vote in getting on that side. Um, if the Chief Justice is not in the majority, then the uh, practice, the traditional practice of the Supreme Court is to let the senior justice, the one, not the oldest, but the one who's been on the court the longest, assign the writing of the court ruling. Now, what the, what the writer of the court ruling will do is, and this is called the majority opinion, is engage in reasoning. And an important part of uh, judicial practice is uh, an established form of legal reasoning. <clears throat> and that established form of legal reasoning dates back to prior to the U.S. Constitution. It's a traditional common law uh, way of reasoning, and it has been adopted by our judicial system, by our judicial culture. When people uh, go to law school, they're, they're, they are acculturated and essentially indoctrinated into this style of legal reasoning. Um, legal reasoning is different than political reasoning. And when I talk about lobbying courts versus uh, lobbying the executive or the legislature, this is one of the, the differences that I'll note, is that there's a different style of reasoning. The court opinion will follow the uh, established traditional form of legal reasoning, which is one, the application of relevant precedent, and two, the interpretation of the text. The text being either the law, which is being interpreted, and the claim is that the executive branch arrested me because they misinterpreted the law, or the, the text is the Constitution because the claim being that the statute actually violates the Constitution. Um, so why both of these aspects? Well, first, precedent is essentially, it's a deeply embedded, but it's a voluntary value in the world of legal reasoning. Precedent uh, is sometimes referred to as stare decisis, which means let the decision stand. Um, and one of the reasons, the, probably the main reason why stare decisis exists and why it's important and why lawyers and judges and justices believe it's important is that the idea is that court rulings establish a dependable uh, landscape for the rule of law to be predictable and consistent across time and space. Uh, if, you, if each case didn't rely on precedent, but just relied on the facts on the ground in the moment, then people don't know what to do in relation to the law. They don't know whether something is gonna, going to land them in jail or not, unless it's really obvious. And mostly, of course, we're talking about gray areas here. Um, so the idea of precedent is deeply embedded because it makes a lot of sense. It helps everybody have a stable set of expectations uh, to know that their behavior either is going to or not going to be on the wrong side of the law. And then, of course, the reason why we have these cases is because, and the ones that make the Supreme Court fit this model, is because even precedent creates gray areas or areas that haven't been mapped yet. Um, there might be cases that involve stuff that was never ruled on before. Uh, the, uh, in the 1920s, the FBI started using wiretaps on phones to combat organized crime, and courts had never ruled on the use of wiretaps before because wiretaps didn't exist prior to the 1920s. So sometimes there's no precedent and you have to create precedent, but for the most part, there's precedent that exists, but sometimes it's easy to follow and sometimes it's gray. But it's always important. 
Um, and one of the things that lawyers are doing when they make an argument before the Supreme Court is they're bringing up their own precedent. And again, I'm getting ahead of what the next lecture is going to be about, um, but I'll just note that that's a big part of what lawyers are doing. And the reason why is because when the justices go to vote and when they go to write the court opinion, they're going to have precedent at the front of their mind. There's going to be a lot of footnotes, a lot of cases cited. If you just if you read a random U.S. Supreme Court ruling, you're going to just see a ton, a ton of previous cases and footnotes about them and all kinds of citations and quotes. That's what's going on here. We're applying the relevant precedent. What makes for relevant? That's part of the argument, and I'll get to that next time. The reason why interpretation of the text is an important part of legal reasoning is because the reason why there's a court dispute in the first place is because the text is not obvious. Um, if the text were obvious, it would maybe there would be a court case, but it wouldn't, re, it wouldn't rise to the Supreme Court because it would be so clear how it should be applied. Um, the U.S. Constitution is less than 5,000 words, and it does a lot in that very short amount of words. It leaves out a lot. There's a lot of vagueness. There's a lot of lack of detail. Um, and uh, the text has to be interpreted in order to make sure that this very short thing can have can, can essentially be the governing blueprint for our entire uh, uh, political system. Statutes, even that are thousands of pages or a thousand pages, the Affordable Care Act is a thousand pages. Um, statutes that are really, really long that don't sort of have that brevity problem that the U.S. Constitution has are also never uh, detailed enough to take into account every single instance. And in fact, statutes are often intentionally, not necessarily vague, but open-ended, leaving it to uh, administrative bodies, executive branches, and future courts to decide the meaning of particular terms. Um, I referenced the Citizens United uh, um, case in the previous lecture, and one of the things that the, uh, the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act uses is the term campaign materials. And they essentially define it and what uh, the nature of it is, but you can't define campaign materials by giving enough details so that every single example of campaign materials out in the world either is black and white, like this is campaign materials, this isn't. You can't make an exhaustive list because you can't predict what campaign materials, uh, electioneering materials might look like in the future. You can give a definition. It will then be up to, in this case, the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, to apply their definition, the statutory definition, to the real world and a particular con uh, uh, conflict. Uh, in the case of the Citizens United ruling, they said, well, this is a documentary, but it actually is a documentary that's intended to attack a particular candidate running for a particular office. So it fits our understanding of the definition, the statutory definition of electioneering or campaign materials, and therefore it is restricted. Um, the text that's going to be interpreted is going to be, in this particular case, it, was the FEC right? So the court is going to be looking at uh, a, um, a, a uh, government's actions in interpreting the statutory text. And in the case of Citizens United, both things happen, but it doesn't always happen that they're paired. Sometimes it's an or. Or the court is going to be looking at the text of the U.S. Constitution and deciding whether or not that statute violates the text of the U.S. Constitution. So let's say in this case, this hypothetical case of U.S. versus Miller, that I'm claiming that a particular law violates uh, the warrant requirement of the Fourth Amendment, um, that a, uh, the warrant uh, didn't uh, uh, represent probable cause. Probable cause is a pretty open-ended uh, term, and so what the court is doing is interpreting the phrase probable cause in the context of this particular controversy. Now. Um, 
And you, of course, using past precedent, because the, the probable cause uh, um, clause has been uh, subject to numerous court rulings, and there's a lot of precedent about it. Um, so there will be that argument, and these two things go in tandem. They'll, if you read any Supreme Court ruling, it's heavy on precedent, but you'll be able to see that there is argumentation about the, the language of the text. So there's, a, there's, a, there's essentially both a legal training aspect, the precedent, what precedent's out there and what does it mean, and this is what clerks do. Uh, clerks find all the precedents and they give them to the, to the justice and say, here's all the relevant precedents and here's what they mean. Uh, and then there's a literary act of actually taking words in context of the document and the concrete situation and interpreting what they mean in the world today. Now, the argument is essentially to support who the winner is. And then, often embedded within the argument, but often uh, really in a separate section of the ruling, will be the important part, the third element, which is the uh, policy, which comes out in a different form than policy comes out in the legislature or the executive branch. The policy comes in a uh, principle, standard, or doctrine, and those things will be applied to other branches, the legislature or the executive, depending on uh, what's, uh, who's, who's uh, involved in the dispute, um, and it will be used by future courts for deciding similar but slightly different cases. Um, so uh, the, uh, it, pre it becomes a precedent that will then get used again. And so one of the things that courts like to do is to provide guidance for future courts to be able to know how to apply re <coughs> excuse me, relevant precedent. Um, so, uh, <coughs> excuse me. What these, this is where the policy uh, lives because essentially, I'll, I'll stick with the Citizens United uh, example because it's, it's a relatively straightforward one. Um, basically what the court is saying in Citizens United is that Citizens United wins. That the, not only, uh, that the, excuse me, not, the, that the, uh, this portion of the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, which allows the FEC to, or requires the FEC to restrict the broadcast of electioneering materials uh, between 30 and 60 days uh, till the election, depending on whether it's a primary or a general election, that that is an unconstitutional infringement of freedom of speech and freedom of association. And they make the argument based on past precedent and applying the language of the statute as well as the language of the U.S. Constitution. Um, and then the, uh, essentially the principle that comes out of it is that outside groups, groups that are not affiliated with the official candidate campaign, are protected by the First Amendment in the expression of any kind of message that they want, whether that message be directly advocating for or against the uh, election of a candidate, or whether that message be about uh, policy or uh, advocating an issue or a side or an opinion, whatever it happens to be, uh, the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act cannot prohibit groups from expressing a direct candidate preference, which is what one of the definitions of electioneering materials, one of the elements of that definition, is directly expressing an opinion. Hillary Clinton shouldn't be president. Donald Trump should be president. Joe Biden should be president. Um, that's a direct, uh, a direct candidate advocacy. The court's principle is saying that the First Amendment protects that form of expression at the highest level. And so why that's policy is that now the FEC doesn't get to enforce this aspect of the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. In fact, they're not allowed to enforce it. 
And this creates the opportunity for what is now called outside uh, groups, outside money, super PACs. Another thing that the court said, this is part of the principle, is that not only do those groups get to say whatever they want, even if that saying is, I think you should vote for this person or I think you should vote against this person, um, that they get to, to spread their message with the pr privacy protections of not having to say where they got their money from, who their members are, uh, essentially not only creating this uh, wide open landscape for uh, election advocacy, which the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act narrowed, um, uh, but also creating a black box around membership and money. And that is a real, that's, that's the, you know, both of those sides are important, but the uh, policy itself is essentially, that's the one-two punch. So what happened was that the court, using judicial review, took out a piece of the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. They didn't get rid of all of it, because it, all of it wasn't an issue, and much of it does, according to the Supreme Court, may, uh, meet the standards of, of constitutionality uh, set down by the First and Fourth Amendments, but some parts of it don't. So what the court got to do was take things out. Now, that is more than just a minor thing, because when you prevent the government from engaging in a certain kind of act, you are actually creating a policy, right? And this policy has had deep implications for the, uh, um, the campaign world. So the Supreme Court very much made policy, but they made policy by eviscerating a piece of legislation and, and by then saying this type of restriction can't ever be made by creating a protective wall around a certain kind of activity, uh, both advocacy and uh, privacy of association and privacy of, of, of financing. So uh, it was, it created a very, uh, essentially by creating a blank space for what the government can do, it created uh, a, uh, an area of freedom for groups to act in ways that cannot be intruded upon by the government. And while that technically was only a result of getting rid of a piece of policy, it actually is a positive act of policy. Every use of judicial review, while it, it's avoiding of something that has been done, is going to be a positive act as well because it creates essentially some kind of sphere of ungoverned, unregulated action. Uh, or, and, and this actually also happens as well, the, the standard that it might create might actually be a positive uh, thing that the government now has to do. So uh, the other uh, case that I referenced in the previous lecture was Matt versus Ohio, which is one of the most important precedents uh, in Supreme Court history as it relates to our criminal justice system. In Matt versus Ohio, the court said that trial courts have to abide by this rule that didn't exist before. And this rule is that if a piece of evidence was obtained in violation of the Constitution, in other words, usually if it violates the Fourth Amendment, um, if a piece of evidence was obtained in violation of the Constitution, then the judge has an obligation to not let that piece of evidence be shown to the jury. So in the case of Matt versus Ohio, rather than creating a blank space where government action cannot exist, which is what Citizens United did and what many cases did, it creates a positive obligation on the part of future courts, in this case trial courts, for judges to implement a particular procedure. And what that means is now, criminal defendants have a right that they didn't have before, and their right is to object to evidence 
that has been unconstitutionally obtained. And how that filters out into the world is that now when you're out on, in, in the world um, and the police come up uh, to you, if they don't have probable cause or a warrant to obtain evidence, even if they get the evidence, they're not going to be able to use it in your prosecution. So that creates for you a, a new criminal justice right. Um, it's not just a blank space like Citizens United created, it's actually a positive thing. So by voiding uh, a part of the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, the Supreme Court created a, you know, an area of freedom. Um, by voiding this, this practice of prosecutors and judges of allowing evidence, however it was obtained, to be shown to juries, in this case, the court is actually creating something that is a positive thing. So judicial policymaking can happen either way. It can either be uh, avoiding that creates a, a, a blank zone of government action that then creates uh, freedom and things can flow into that, um, or it actually creates a positive obligation of the government to do certain things. Um, a lot of these positive obligations are in fact court rules for other courts. Uh, the exclusionary rule is a, is, is a great example of how the, the Supreme Court essentially contributes to criminal procedure by saying the Constitution requires this particular kind of thing. Um, it could also be, as in the case of um, uh, Gideon versus Wainwright, which was the case about whether, uh, whether or not indigent defendants have the right to uh, an attorney, and does that just mean that they can't be stopped from getting an attorney or they have a right to actually have one provided for them. The court ruled in that case that indigent defendants have a right to have an attorney supplied to them for free. And so in that case, um, by voiding the traditional practice of only, uh, uh, you know, by saying, well, you can have a lawyer if you want, we're not gonna give you one, but we're not gonna stop you. That was the original interpretation of uh, the Sixth Amendment. Gideon versus Wainwright said, no, no, no. The state governments actually have to establish uh, public defender offices, fund them, and create procedures for uh, def uh, defendants to claim indigence and to claim the, that they get a particular free lawyer. Now, the courts largely then left it up to the states to fill out the policy details and decide what counts as indigent and how much resources to give to public defenders, how many of them to have, uh, where to put the offices. All of those policy details got filled in by legislatures and executive uh, uh, implementation of, of legislative acts. But the court was saying in their standard, they were saying, you have to do this. And if you don't do this, then basically every time somebody who's indigent can't afford a lawyer, doesn't get one, we're gonna set them free because their right has been violated. So you have to go out and do something that's, that, that's positive. So po judicial policy making can either be negative in the sense that it clears out a zone of non-government, no government action, or it creates some kind of positive process or obligation on the part of the government to do a particular thing. Uh, so uh, that's how the process of judicial policy making goes, uh, comes about, and hopefully you can see why these kinds of cases would be of major interest to interest groups, because either clearing out a zone of non-government interference or creating a positive obligation for the government to do a certain thing, could those, those outcomes could very much benefit or uh, be problematic for interest groups and the interests, both material and value, that they want to promote. In the final lecture in this series and in, in this week, we're gonna look at how it is that the interest groups and the lawyers that they hire make the arguments so that they can become the winner.